Hey everybody, my name is Bob, and welcome to the Late Night Playlist. Go ahead and grab your favorite adult beverage and get ready to talk about the album of the week with my friends and me. Let's get started. Alright, so hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Late Night Playlist. This week, me and Tom, Derek, and Brett say hi everybody. Hey everybody. Hello. Howdy. We are listening to Warren Zevon's Learning to Flinch, which is an excellent album that was recorded in many different venues all around the world between June 24th and October 13th in 1992 and was released in 1993. So I thought we should talk a little bit about what was happening in 1993, because if you're listening to this, there's a good chance that just like me, You may have forgotten a thing or two about what was going on in 1993. Bill Clinton. Everybody remember Bill Clinton? He was sworn in as the 42nd president of the United States. On February 26th of 1993, the North Tower of the World Trade Center was bombed, killing six people and injuring more than 1,000. There was a great blizzard in 1993, killed 184 people. Here's something that's really interesting, and it kind of goes back to our last podcast. In Rochester, New York, the fifth largest armed robbery to ever occur inside the United States happened in 1993. Thieves stole $7.4 million from a Brinks car, one of those big armored trucks in Rochester, New York. Now, I know what you're thinking had nothing to do with Sun House. He had passed away about five years earlier, so it wasn't him. It could have been that Lattimore guy, though. (laughs) I don't know. Don't know anything about him. Unforgiven was the best picture at the Academy Awards that year. Uh, That was a good movie. At least I thought so. Absolutely. The Waco siege of the Branch Davidians happened in 1993. That still gets talked about quite a bit. Yep, very well. The the Battle of Mogadishu, which maybe some people have forgotten, but uh, Black Hawk Down, excellent yeah. movie. If you haven't seen it, I certainly recommend watching it and reading the book. Uh, the Battle of Mogadishu took place in 1993. Jurassic Park was released. And that's important to the album that we're, we're listening to tonight because there is a link between Jurassic Park and Warren Zevon. All right. Yeah, there there is a a direct link between Jurassic Park and this album. China conducted its first nuclear weapons test in 1993. NAFTA was passed. The video game Doom was first released. Everybody's played Doom before, right? Oh yeah. The Hubble telescope got fixed and got its first pictures. Not from 1993. Today, we're talking about Warren Zevon, who was born in 1947 and passed away from, what was it again, Derek? It was I think it was mesothelioma, right? Mesothelioma, that's right, yeah. in September of 2003, so 10 years after this album came out. If only he'd seen all the damn mesothelioma commercials on TV and, and uh, <laughs> gotten a lawyer and taken action. Right. Oh, yeah, that just gets you money. So, yeah, not necessarily better. <laughs> I wonder what 
We don't have, well, Derek, you're probably the closest thing we have to a medical expert. And you, <laughs> you may or we may not. We are so much in trouble, Dan, <laughs> if this is the case. Yeah. We may, you may or may not have stayed at a, uh, a Motel 6 last night. So, <laughs> I, nope, I was at home. So. Okay. Was the, uh, has mesothelioma, uh, have we gotten better at treating that in the last uh, 30 years? You know, years? I, I honestly don't know. Right. It's, it's still pretty nasty thing to come down with if you get it but hopefully they've taken all the action necessary to try to get rid of the environmental contaminants that lead to mesothelioma and, right but, yeah i mean had he been sucking down asbestos or anything at, at any point <laughs> well i think warren's big problem was he didn't like doctors he was he was scared to death of doctors and he he had uh he had mentioned before in a few interviews that the only doctor he would ever see was a dentist and never went to see a doctor. And then eventually when he did go to see one, it was just too late to do anything for him. I see. Yeah. See, he, I, he probably liked hanging out in old government buildings. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the asbestos closure came from. I'm pretty sure he was a GS during the day. <laughs> I <think> so. <laughs> Maybe not, huh? <laughs> Warren Zevon, working right. for the intelligence community. The there you United go. States of America. So, so. The whole, the whole, uh, that, that sounds like a movie actually right there. You know, the whole, the whole rock star thing was a cover and he was actually a spy going around the world doing stuff for the CIA, right? He does reference the CIA in at least one of the songs. Now, wasn't there a game show host that later claimed that he was a CIA assassin? Um, gong that, show. Right, yeah. the guy did a gong show. Um, yeah, what was his name? I can't remember the gong show, guys. That's terrible. Well, his first name, Chuck. Chuck Barris. Chuck Barris. Yeah, Chuck there Barris. you go, Chuck Thank Barris. you. Yeah. I yeah. was thinking Chuck Woolery, and I'm like, I know it's not Chuck Woolery. It's, I was uh, thinking the same thing. Chuck Barris, yeah. Chuck Barris. There was even a movie about that, right? Yeah. Made a movie. Yeah. That's yeah. a decent movie. Yeah. Oh, you've seen it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good movie. <laughs> we, should, we, should, uh, we should rent that and watch it sometime and do the review on that. There we go. Hey, hi, I'm game for that. That's, that was pretty good. That was, that was a decent movie. Good entertainment. So, Bob, what were you doing in 1993? In 1993, uh, I I actually lived in three different places in 1993. I I lived in uh, in California. I lived in Texas, and I lived in Cuba in 1993. So I was busy moving most of that year. Wow. There's another right. Cuba reference in this episode. Someone start keeping count. <laughs> right, we're up to right. two so far. So that's uh... <laughs> well, you were you were in more places than me. I, I was in Gallia County, Ohio, and Athens, Ohio. So yeah. those were my two whereabouts. Yeah, I, I alternated between Columbus and Galapagos. That's the same here. I I just looked. I graduated from Ohio State that fall. So fall of 93. Okay, so fall of 93, you graduated and then then started started the job hunt in earnest at that point. Uh, 
Yes, and and it was uh, I actually uh, got hired into the government straight out of school, but uh, as a CIA uh, assassin. The, pardon? As a CIA assassin? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you and Chuck <laughs> Barris hanging out? That's right. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I I was I was as I was listening to this album today. Uh, there was a point in time where the cassette version of this album was like on, you know, was top five in what I was listening to in the late nineties. I don't know if it would have been 93, 94, um, but it got a lot of wear and tear. Hmm. I had bought this CD in 93 back in, back in the day when I used to just go out and, buy CDs because they looked interesting without really knowing everything on them. And I, I knew uh, Werewolves of London, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. I think everyone, that's probably if you born Zevon, one song, that's the one probably everybody everybody knows. But I just remember being just completely blown away by this CD when listening to it. And it was just so stripped down. It was him and the guitar, or him and piano. I don't believe there was any other backing going on. It sounded pretty solo. Right. And it was just, it reminds me as you know, all of us have been to various bars and restaurants with the single singer, songwriter, solo act kind of thing. I mean, this was it at its kind of maximum level, right? This was the guy who was the show by himself. I was going to ask, is is he the guy playing the piano also? I know, uh-huh. I know yeah. he's doing the guitar and the harmonica, but. Right. Yep, no, he play, he's a piano player and uh, was band leader for, I think, the Everly Brothers in the past mm-hmm. and some other other acts. He was a well-known musician out in Hollywood and a number of gigs and, you know, band leader for touring acts and stuff like that for really striking out on his own. I do suspect that on there was there was one of the tracks where there were some pretty intricate lead guitar things going on i don't wonder if for some of these gigs he he had you know maybe a back uh, another guitarist as a backup because i i don't recall warren ever being a flashy guitar more of a yeah. strong i know but, uh, before stuff. before this the only time i had ever seen him actually play anything was the 20 30 times i saw him on david letterman over the years yeah, yeah. And he he never did anything other than strum. I knew him from Lawyers, Guns, and Money and Werewolves of London. And uh, that was about it. I, I tell you, my favorite track on the album, Splendid Isolation. Uh, very, very first track on the album. Very first track. Right. And uh, love hearing that tune. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second that. Um, I knew the lawyers, guns, and money. Yeah, that's that and Werewolves of London, of course. But uh, that that first track really grabbed you. You know, that was uh, that was a good one. And uh, I told you guys I run to these these things. That's my running music, you know. And and uh, I get I had a good pace that day. You know, I, I listened to it twice, and both times uh, it worked for me. I, I'll tell you one other thing. I was impressed with his German. The man can speak a reasonable German. <laughs> By all accounts, he was a very intelligent guy. You know, oh, yeah. obviously a musical genius. You know, 
I think his album's best of album is called Genius, you know, for good reason. And and I'm going to tell a story here. There's a song in here called the uh, French Inhaler. That's um was as I was reading up about it was apparently about an ex girlfriend who had a at time was not ex but she was uh, having an affair with another musician. So he wrote this song as kind of a retribution to her for that. And I saw a quote from one of her children saying that, you know, I hate to say this because this song is about my mom, but it's the greatest screw you song, you know, that was ever written. He said, he goes, even my mom likes it. She will play it after a couple drinks and just say, it's just genius. You know, the song, and that's... uh Now, seriously, if somebody wrote a song about you, I mean, that'd have to be your favorite song. I mean, even if, <laughs> even if it's yeah. telling you to go to hell. Right, Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'll be so, happy to be on my way. Was was the other guy named Norman? I, I think that was, they said, a reference to Norman Mailer, and I'm not exactly certain how that fit in, but there was some sort of link. I don't think Norman Mailer was the gentleman she was sleeping with. But it was a reference to some work he had done or something that supposedly fit into this. Well, I mean, his lyrics, the songs are very literary. They, uh, they're they well written. It's not your typical, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, verse, chorus, verse type shit. It's, it's a quality narrative in the, in the tunes. You have to be paying attention. To one of Warren's songs to understand it, you know it's not to yes. I'll just turn it on and hang out. You know it's I got to listen, but but not concentrating on understanding the words he's saying. You can understand very well what he's saying, like you said. You got to put the story together. You know you got to follow along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I don't need a lyric sheet. I can understand what he's saying. I just need to pay attention to what he's saying. So was Boom Boom Mancini based on factual events? Yes. Yes. If you remember in the, uh, was it late 80s? I think it was late 80s. Yeah. Dooku Boom Boom Mancini got yeah. in a fight with a, uh, a Korean boxer. And, okay. And the Korean boxer died a couple days after the fight uh, from injuries. Well, I was wondering. From injuries sustained during the fight. Or, or at least partially from injuries sustained during the fight. Uh, it, it was a whole story. Mancini went to the funeral for this guy, so it's it's not like he was, you know, he, he wasn't uh, he wasn't hated by the family or anything. You know, I mean, they both chose to walk into the ring, but uh, there was several several family members ended up killing themselves of, of the Korean fighter uh, afterwards. That was linked back to his death from from the ring, and there was. Part of it was because of how he trained, you know, because to, to get into the ring, you know, because boxers have to weigh a certain weight before they'll let them get in and, and fight. This guy had to go on like a starvation diet, apparently, oh, to, to wow. cut down weight uh, to get into okay. the ring. So he was dehydrated and hadn't eaten in a couple of days or whatever before he got into the ring and then really got smacked around because, you know, Boom Boom was called Boom Boom for a reason and it just didn't work out well. Whatever happened to him? He just kind of disappears. He's still alive? I don't know. I, I, I read that he, he had a lot of depression after this because, you know, I mean, that'll affect somebody, 
obviously he didn't go into the ring trying to kill anybody. No, no he didn't want that guy to die. I mean, this, this hit him pretty hard, if I recall correctly. I, w- yeah. I wonder if Tyson got depressed after biting that guy's ear. <laughs> <laughs> Holyfield. Yeah, Vander Holyfield. Right. Yeah. We're off track. Yeah. We are. But hey, yeah. hey, let me, before I completely forget, let me let me tell you about Jurassic Park. Because oh. we're, we're jumping around a little bit. Now, it's not my personal favorite song on the album, but it's not a bad song either. Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So we all know the song, right? It's about a about a Thompson machine gunner who uh, gets mercenary. His, yeah, he gets yeah. his gets his head chopped off or blown off by the CIA or whatever, and then his ghost comes back and kills the guy who killed him, and then wanders around uh, different different countries in Africa for the next forty or fifty years, killing people because, well, what's a ghost in Africa to do, right? What else? Yeah, there's nothing else right. to do. Yeah, but uh, I told you there was a link between this album and Jurassic Park. And it's, it's this, if you remember in Jurassic Park, number one, there was a guy who was a, uh, his character was Roland Timbo. And he was a, uh, like a big game hunter, ex-mercenary yes. type who was played by Pete Postlewaite, who is a, uh, a character actor from, uh, from England who was a really interesting guy. The, the character was named after Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner because the director was a fan of Warren Zevon and <laughs> he, he knew that he was going to cut Roland Timbo's head off in the, uh, in the movie. So he, he wanted that connection between Warren Zevon and the movie. Oh my gosh, that is outstanding! Yeah, that is, that is great. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, so I thought that was pretty funny. <clears throat> Definitely. Where we're talking about Roland, um, the song before it is called "Roland Corral." It's just a musical piece, and as I understand it, as one of the three pieces on this album, that's the first time they were on a re- recording. Was this was Roland Corral the Warrior King? Warrior King, sorry. And uh, indifference of heaven. Here's my weakness when we do these things. I, I'm running, and I'm not paying attention to what the name of the song is. I'm just listening to it. So I heard it all, but I don't remember the, you know, unless it was really obvious, like the headless Thompson gunner, you know, Roland. I, I that one's pretty easy to figure out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, I kind of miss the miss the titles sometimes. Well, the good news, most of his titles are, you know lyrics in a song it's not too hard to figure out it's not obscure. yeah yeah <laughs> i mean lawyers guns and money probably being the most obvious yeah title, right? so, <laughs> yeah i love that song yeah. i do too you know uh, i don't i don't know about you guys and and maybe we talked about this when we were 19 or 18 or whatever but i gotta be honest with you you know that song is exactly what i thought life was going to be like <laughs> and you were right. Well, because it was like that at that time. <laughs> at that time, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I was thinking about when when in my life was I ever in a situation where, you know, lawyers and guns and money were impactful. I'm like, okay, it was it was when I was 18, 19, 20. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I like. Go ahead, Brett. Sorry. No, I, I was just going to repeat what Bob said. It's, it's sort of like you know, I thought that was. It's funny how every point in your life you think it's all going to hell. You know, it's all about lawyers, guns, and money now, and yet here we are. You know, almost thirty years past that point. And what is it now? It's all about lawyers, guns, and money. (laughs) (laughs) The first I ever heard that song was when Hank Williams Jr. Oh, interesting. Wow, I didn't know that. All right. I had heard it as a Hank Jr. cover. Hmm. I think he might have included it. I know I'd seen him in concert a couple times, but I think he might have included it on a live album that he put out, like Hank Jr. Live or something like that, back in in you know the '90s. And I never never even thought about who wrote it, but it was interesting to find out that was a Warren Zevon song. I believe Jimmy Buffett has also covered that song. I believe it. It yeah. sounds like Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, yeah, a guy who could also use lawyers, guns, and money. <laughs> that first line in that song you know i i i forget exactly how it goes but i i went home with a waitress just like many oh, times yeah. before yeah i mean that's uh, come on now that's that's maybe the best line ever <laughs> how is he to know that she was with the russians too or whatever <laughs> <That's>, uh... <laughs> you know it's it's interesting because when i was listening to this earlier today and I think I listened to part of this while I was on my walk and I listened to the last of it when I was in the car driving and it dawned on me that he reminds me a lot of Jimmy Buffett in that his songs are creating this, uh, uh, they're referencing this life that I'm sure he may have lived at one point in his life, but probably grew out of and, and, uh, but, you know, like Jimmy Buffett, you know, hey, there's a lot of money in, in, in uh, you know, preserving that life for people via songs. Mm-hmm. And yep. it was it dawned on me that he, they, they are similar in that way, that a lot of his songs were kind of romancing these uh, some of these quirky events and, uh, you know, lifestyles that uh, I'm sure at a certain point in time, he was no longer living that lifestyle. These are people kind of living on the fringes of society, right? One way or another. And Probably I don't want to say Jimmy point. Buffett and Lawrence Yvonne living on the same fringe, but they're both on fringes of society. And Lots of different fringes. Yeah. yeah like, I hope he wasn't living on the excitable boy fringe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some questionable stuff going on in that song, right? I mean, I don't even know questionable is the right uh, way to describe that. There's some downright scary stuff going on in that song. Yeah, you know, so yeah, hats off. I, I don't know, uh, Derek, if you're the one that suggested it. So I had never heard this album. I would have never heard the album. Wouldn't have bothered, you know, with it. But uh, I'm glad you uh, put it on the list. Thank you. One of the things I liked about this album is now having heard a lot of these other songs under normal, you know, recordings with full orchestration and bands and stuff. I actually prefer most of these, the stripped down versions. They just seem more authentic. and. I like my singer songwriters that way. So, okay. Let me ask you guys a question. We did Sunhouse and now we've done Warren Zevon here. So, 
uh, both live. I got the sense when I listened to Sunhouse, this was not redubbed. He did not go back to a studio and fix anything that was wrong or whatever. I'm not so sure about this album. I have a feeling maybe if something wasn't quite right, he might have read, you know, readdressed that, we'll say. I have, no, I have no idea if he did or didn't, but I've read some things saying that's kind of the dirty secret of live albums. Most of the time they go back in the studio and, and fix yeah. it. And I would say especially in the, the 90s, um, I, I, I don't think any, anything substantial would have been done on this. Maybe a few touch-ups here and there. Maybe a few punch-ins, but you know the, the core of the songs, I'm guessing, are as they were recorded on stage. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, uh, with with Sunhouse, you know what you what you see is what you got with him, <laughs> uh, and with with Warren, as I as I mentioned earlier, and the reason why I mentioned is exactly what you just were talking about, Brett. You know this this album was recorded between June 24th and October 13th, 1992 in multiple venues around the world. So, so it's entirely possible. He just picked the best yeah. one from the show. And, and it and might not have even been that. the best one from the shows. It might've been the best. Well, the first quarter of this song, the, the, you know, oh, I got yeah. they can, they can dub yeah. those things together fairly well. Yeah. Uh, they got a, they got that technology even back in 1993, uh, so it, it could have been that. Uh, so there could have been some studio magic. There's definitely some spots in there where some uh, some dubbing could have been done and it wasn't. So I don't think they went to any great pains to take care of things. So like the Eagles, you know, they were fairly. Uh, they had an outstanding live album uh, in about 1980, mm-hmm. and you know, I've, I've heard them say it. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going off a of hearsay or anything, but where at one point Glenn Fry was like in L.A. and Don Henley was in Virginia somewhere and they wouldn't speak to each other, but they were fixing things on the album. Yep. And I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, wait a minute, this is a live album. What do you mean fixing things? You know? <laughs> right. Well, like, like uh, you know, Thin Lizzy put out uh, Bob what was the thin Lizzy uh, the uh, God the great thin Lizzy live album oh, and, crap. Uh, and and you find out that that thing was totally thrown in the trash and recreated in the studio <laughs> it, literally literally and it's a it's one of the best live albums I've ever owned in my life and I think Iron Maiden's Live After Death was, there were similar, you know, a lot of touch-ups. And, uh, you know, I think in, you know, especially in the 80s, 90s, that was the thing for live albums. You know, you have the technology. Well, let's fix it. I, I'm guessing with this one, there probably wasn't a whole lot because Warren wasn't doing a whole lot of, you know, stuff that, probably had to be fixed. It was probably pretty, pretty accurate to the stage. I agree with you. I, I didn't get a sense that there was a lot of that going on. Um, you know, it made me want to listen to the Eagles again and think about that, you know, when, 
on their live album, but I didn't get a lot of sense of that going on. Um, maybe a little bit. Um, certainly Sunhouse, there was nothing. There was none of that going on. Who knows if he even had, had control of the recording after it was over, you know? Yeah, it was just an interesting thought about Live it. Live and Dangerous. Ah. That was That's the Thin Lizzy album I was trying to think of. You know what? I'm going to choose to just be naive and happy and assume that the way Warren played it is the way it came across on Well, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking back to when I first got hooked on this album back in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. I just assumed it was from a single concert. I never read the liner notes or anything like that. And as I was re-listening today, it started dawning on me that, okay, I think this is pieced together from a tour. But, uh, you know, I went for years thinking this was all a single show. Yeah. Well, that's that's not that strange to think that, you know, even uh, most people think that a lot of live albums are just one show. And there's very few live albums that are just one show. It, you read a lot about like the Frank Zappa stuff, like especially the, the You Can't Do That on State series. I mean, that is totally pieced together stuff. To, to Frank Zappa's testament, to the testament of his greatness. He was such a great editor and arranger, and he would piece, he'd take this thing from this concert and this thing from this concert, and you're listening to those, you know, that series of seven albums, and you're like, I'd never know. It's great mm -hmm. stuff. Sounds better than the studio recordings. So, yeah, I had to get, you know, I was getting parched out here, so you know, had to had to get that fixed here. Speaking <laughs> about uh, Frank Zappa, I was reading an article that uh, Steve Vai had written about his time with Frank Zappa, yeah. and he was he was uh, doing kind of a juxtaposition between working with Zappa and working with David Lee Roth, uh, yeah. and and talking about how weird it was trying to to go between the two because with like Zappa it was really really intricate and on stage you better just stand there and play every single note right and get it all down exactly the way it's supposed to be and then with roth it was eh, try to get most of the notes but you better look good yeah. <laughs> well, you know two comments uh to your zappa story if you want to read a really good book Scott Thunes. Uh, Scott Thunes put out a book called uh, The Best Band You Never Heard in Your... Uh, I think it was The Best Band You Never Heard in Your Life. I can't remember. But it was about that 80s. And this was after Vi. And this was when Adrian Ballou and, and even beyond him when uh, uh, the guy that replaced Adrian his, his last time in Zappa um, his name will come to me, but it was about that final tour of Zappas that just fell apart. And it, it, it really gave you a sense how difficult it was to be in Zappas band and how he put these people through their paces from the audition through uh, rehearsing for the tour. And there was a lot of angst and this band just fell apart because it was, a, an assembly of 
the best of the best at what they do out there on this part of this on this tour and they hated scott things because scott was named the band leader and it just completely imploded but it's a great book and and i tell you i got all hyped up back to vi when um they almost reassembled that uh, uh Edom and smile era band with billy sheehan and steve by and was it greg bissonette sure was drums? and and there was a moment in time where they were all going to come together and do a show and i was like oh my god this is going to be so good because i remember seeing that band on tour and it, it didn't happen david lee roth backed out of it what a disappointment i would love to see those guys were incredible. yeah that's too bad that was that was quite the band he put together and then with him up there kicking around and jumping and doing whatever it was roth does you know, David Lee Roth was also one of these guys we talked about earlier, selling kind of the fringe lifestyle that, you know, he, David Lee Roth had to be David Lee Roth all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back then, he's a different guy now, in a sense, but, you know. He's got to he, be. He's in his 60s and he's still alive. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, obviously <laughs> the risk is to become a character caricature of yourself, right? And He may have done that to a degree. Yeah, well, he, yeah. He did. I tell you what, I'm a big Henry Rollins fan, and I read all of Henry's books, and Henry idolizes David Lee Ross. So, you know, as 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 many issues as I think David Lee Roth may or may not have, I don't know, I don't know the man, the fact that Henry Rollins vouches for the guy, he's okay by me. I, I wasn't aware of that. No, I'm not obviously not as huge a fan as you are because I don't have all of his books, but I, I enjoy reading things that he writes. I, I watch him when I can. He's a very interesting person. You, it, it's interesting with his books. You get a lot of the same thing over and over again. It's always good, but you kind of, I can kind of speed read his books because you get to the place where, okay, Henry, you've said that a million times before I'm moving on to the next, to the next story or whatever. Have you, have you seen his movie? The uh, the in the the onstage no no thing? no it's uh he never died no yeah yeah you should look it up I think that's the name of it he never died yeah okay. I won't I won't spoil I... it for you but uh, it's, it's pretty good yeah um I I've, I've watched it three or four times so that's uh it's it's free on Netflix or Amazon or something um but uh, it's it's a pretty good movie. And it's it's Henry being Henry. So he's got a series of books. And if you like what we're doing right here, where we're talking about albums. So he's got a radio show where he gets on and he'll pick like half a dozen albums, play songs and, and you know, do his thing, talk about the albums. He's got a book that catalogs all his radio shows and has the uh, kind of the dialogue that he gives about the albums and give some backstories on on the albums great great reads that's the the you know if you if you get tired of henry you know henry's little philosophizing and stuff like that and you want to hear somebody who's a very big music fan talk about music those are the books to right. read. that's awesome man i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to get a hold of one of those 
or, or all of them. Anybody got anything else they want to talk about? We've, we kind of veered hard into the left and right and all the way around yeah. on, <laughs> yeah. on Warren Zevon's uh, uh, Learning to Flinch. Anybody got any final thoughts I, on the album? I, I yeah, do. Well, go, go ahead, ahead Brent. No, you yeah, go ahead. He, all right. Well, yours will be, yours will be uh, certainly a better set of comments than mine. I have no doubt of that. But if you're out on a run and you want something to take your mind off of your ankles hurting, your knees hurting, your hips hurting, every possible joint hurting as you're running, you know, Warren did an outstanding job of that with this album. Uh, like, you know, the, the pace, the beat wasn't all that fast, but it was interesting to listen to. And you're, you're off being a headless Thompson gunner, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, Hey, this is kind of cool, you know, and, you don't think about the pain you're in, you know. So uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, that was it was good for that. The Henry Rollins is fanatic, and there's three fanatic books, and there's two stay fanatic books, and they all are from his Harmony in My Head radio show. Like Henry Warren's very much a literary guy. A lot of literary people were his friends, and you know we talked about Norman Mailer earlier references and. You know, I, I read a Warren biography not that long ago. It, I won't say the book itself was great because it was a lot of his notes and then, then just comments from people who were in his life at the time. But the stories were interesting. I, I won't share too many of them here because I don't know that they relate to the songs. Other than This seemed like his album may came from a period where he was trying to rebuild his career because he had several ups and downs in his career. You know, a lot of them were self-inflicted on himself. But so, so another note, do you guys remember that right after this album came out, he and Peter Buck from REM got in a band together? And yeah, I'm trying he, to remember. He actually had REM as a backing band at one point on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And this was his REM was kind of falling apart, you know, which is really interesting in and of itself you know just two great a great musician and great band working together you know that i don't know people would have necessarily considered them considering their music's different from each other significantly different i also wanted to talk about the pacing of the album and that the fact it was a live album obviously his biggest song is werewolves of london i don't think we need to talk too much about that i did find interesting that that wasn't the final track you know, if you think of it's a live show, you're going to end on that big one. And good night, everybody. <laughs> you know, we'll see you next time kind of thing. But, you know, he actually ended on Play It All Night Long, which is a wonderful song in and of itself. In my, and again, he, his cultural references are throughout his music. And that one definitely had it, you know, playing a dead man song and stuff like that. Oh, okay. That being said, Sean, I, I, got to walk in front of uh, Lee Ho Fuchs in London. I Did got you really? It. it was a real place. It really was. And idiot me, I didn't take a picture of it. Didn't get a takeout <laughs> menu. Heck, forget menu. I should have gotten takeout dinner that night. You know? Right, right, yeah. But yeah, right. Go in and have a drink. Place. Yeah, no, Exactly. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Holy Maybe cow, howl at the moon you know? a little. Yeah. Yeah. So after I get collect, Exactly. After I collected my wits, and next time I'm in London, I'm like, okay, I'm going over there. So we go over to, I think it was Soho, 
and uh, it wasn't raining and, and it was closed. So, it was, it, I mean, there was something in there, but it wasn't Leho Books anymore. So oh. that kind of sucked, but oh, well, what can you say? I was going to ask if you guys had a favorite track on the album before we wind this thing up. Um, Number one. Splendid Isolation. Okay. Yeah. I did. How many times have you been there? Yeah, that's true. Splendid Isolation for you, for your favorite track on the album? For me? Yeah, for you, Brett. Sorry. No, no, I'm going to go. I, I kind of like Lawyer's Done Somebody. I, okay. I thought that was pretty fun. <laughs> Bob, did you I, have a favorite? I, I thought... Uh... I liked several of them, uh, but uh, Mr. Bad Example really spoke to me on several different levels. So, <laughs> so we, we covered the first three songs on the album, and I'm going to break with you because Excitable Boy was not my favorite song on the album. Uh, uh, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm getting older, but you know, I tend to now go for the slower mm-hmm. stuff on there, and probably... Uh, the Indifference of Heaven may be my favorite one on there. It seems like maybe the most contemplative ah. song on the album. And and usually if I pull it up, it's kind of late at night and I'm just bouncing through stuff and just playing what interests me. And it seems like at some point tonight, it always comes back around. It had a really intricate strum. I like the, I like the rhythm that he had set up for that one. And Sean, definitely share the name of the bio you read because... I would like to read more about it. Yeah, it's um, I'll sleep when I'm dead if I remember correctly. That's okay. The so it's uh, his wife put it out. It was based on journal entries he had and just interviews with people. It could use some serious editing. I'll be perfectly honest with you, but it was probably the most raw picture of him that we're going to get. And great musician, flawed individual like we all are. Hey, thanks everybody for listening to our second episode. Don't forget to listen to our next Late Night Playlist podcast where we discuss Concrete Blonde's Mexican Moon album. That's a really interesting album from a really interesting band. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Thanks again from all of us here at the Late Night Playlist. We hope all of your late nights are good ones.